Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East saying the U.S. wants to de-escalate tensions. The violence between the American military and Iranian proxies raises questions about why the U.S. still has so many troops in the region. In almost all cases, the consequences of a U.S. withdrawal are far more risky than the risks associated with staying. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, King Charles III is suspending public duties while he's treated for cancer. Buckingham Palace says he will continue the paperwork of state business as he undergoes outpatient treatment. And Fox News and others in conservative media are positioned to support Donald Trump for president. But in the last four years, Fox has paid hundreds of millions of dollars to settle just one lawsuit, and it's facing another. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The fate of a border security bill faces more uncertainty in the U.S. Senate as the chamber prepares to hold a test vote this week. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell spoke a short time ago. A gaping hole in our nation's sovereign borders on President Biden's watch is not going to heal itself. But Majority Leader Chuck Schumer echoed concerns voiced by both Democrats and Republicans, the need to pass additional foreign aid to Israel, as well as Ukraine's defense against Russian forces loyal to President Vladimir Putin. If we fail the Ukrainian people, then Vladimir Putin will likely succeed in his invasion of Ukraine. Putin will be emboldened, and Western democracy will face the greatest threat it has seen in decades. NPR's Jasmine Garz reports Senate Republicans and Democrats released their compromise package last night. The deal comes after Republicans demanded more border enforcement in exchange for sending aid to Ukraine and Israel. It includes making it more difficult to claim asylum at the border, expanding migrant detention capacity, and shutting down the border to new entrants if more than 8,500 people attempt to cross on any given day. President Biden has implored Congress to pass the bill and send it to his desk as soon as possible. But with several House Republican leaders expressing vocal opposition to the deal and former President Donald Trump campaigning against it, some lawmakers are saying it has no chance of moving forward. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. California is getting hit by the second major winter storm in a week. NPR's Michael Copley reports that when these storms happen one after another, the damage can be devastating. California didn't have time to dry out before heavy rain and wind started pounding the state yet again. The storm is the result of an atmospheric river. It's a band of water vapor in the sky that can dump huge amounts of rain and snow. They're natural phenomena that deliver most of the precipitation western states need for crops and drinking water. But when they come in rapid succession, they can inflict huge economic costs that's because areas that are already soaked are more likely to experience severe flooding and debris flows. Research published this year found expected losses are more than three times greater when an atmospheric river is part of a sequence of storms. Climate change is expected to make these kinds of storm systems even more intense. Michael Copley, NPR News. Buckingham Palace has announced that Britain's King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. Villa Marks has more. Buckingham Palace did not share details of the cancer or Charles's prognosis, despite an unusually detailed recent account of the King's prostate treatment that he'd said was intended to raise awareness about that condition. He's beginning what his office called regular treatments, and though he'll continue to fulfill his constitutional role of head of state, he will not carry out public duties for the time being. That's Villa Marks reporting.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. A move to help people who live on the streets of Boston is being credited with housing 300 people between the summer of 2021 and last October. Jim Green with the Mayor's Office of Housing helped run the Street to Home initiative. He says the city has received an additional $16.5 million federal grant to carry on similar work over the next three years. We have uh, plans in place to work with many of the same organizations and some new partners to house another 372 people from the streets into housing uh, and to build an infrastructure around the the stabilization services that people need long-term to be successful. Green says the great majority of people who are housed under the initiative remain housed long-term. A new U.S. Amherst poll finds there's little appetite for a Biden-Trump presidential rematch. Out of more than 1,000 people surveyed nationwide, 53 percent say it would have been better if Trump did not run this year. 57 percent say it would have been preferable for Biden not to seek re-election. The poll also found a majority of Americans view both candidates as old, and roughly half say they are out of touch with the issues facing the country. College hockey is king tonight in Boston. It is day one of the men's beanpot tournament at the TD Garden. Harvard and Northeastern play in the first game at 5 o'clock. That'll be followed by Boston College and Boston University. WBR's Fausto Menard reports it'll be the third time BC and BU clash over the past week and a half. Boston College took both games of a home-and-home series late last month. That knocked BU out of the top spot in the national rankings and propelled BC to number one in the country. Eagles freshman center Will Smith of Lexington says that's all in the past. He's looking forward to his first beanpot. I grew up going to this tournament every year, so it's been my dream to play in it. And you grew up going to the Bruins games, too, so it's just all around a really special event for the whole state of Massachusetts and especially for uh, the four schools that are in it. BU last won the Beanpot two years ago. BC hasn't won it since 2016. The winner of tonight's game will play for the championship next Monday night against the winner of the Harvard-Northeastern matchup. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 39 degrees now, so nice out there right now, but it looks like clouds are on the way in. Overnight tonight should be a cold wind, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, more clouds, temperatures in the mid-30s, and then Wednesday, clouds in the morning, sunshine eventually, highs about 40 degrees. The time is 4.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include UCSF Health. The human brain is complex. The neurological specialists at UC San Francisco are dedicated to finding new and better ways to treat it. More at ucsfhealth.org slash great minds. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a few minutes, we will have details on today's announcement from Buckingham Palace that Britain's King Charles III has cancer. The type of cancer was not immediately revealed, but the 75-year-old monarch has already begun treatment. We've got that story coming up, but first... America's top diplomat is back in the Middle East trying to reassure everyone that the U.S. does not want a war with Iran. That's even as the U.S. military is launching airstrikes on militias across the region that are backed by Iran. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with him. Hi, Michelle. Hi there, Sasha. Michelle, what is Blinken trying to do on this trip? Well, de-escalation seems to be the main buzzword. He you know, wants to remind people in the region that the U.S. is going to respond to militia attacks, especially if Americans are killed. But U.S. officials say the response will be proportionate, and the goal is not to escalate this into a regional war. 
But they're also saying that this could continue and they won't rule out even more strikes while Blinken is in the region. The other big issue, of course, is Gaza. This is Blinken's fifth trip to the Middle East since that war broke out. And each time he comes, he's been pushing Israel to agree to get more aid into Gaza and to do more to safeguard Palestinian civilians. But, Michelle, today Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is again saying that the goal is, quote, total victory over Hamas. And he's saying that Israel can't finish the war before then, even if that takes months and not years. That doesn't seem promising for any breakthroughs for Blinken. Yeah, I mean, U.S. officials were already downplaying the idea of any breakthroughs on this trip, but they think that Israel does have an interest in reaching a new deal with Hamas to get hostages out of Gaza and a pause in fighting, a pause that is longer than the the deal that they had last year. There are two other countries involved in that diplomacy, Egypt and Qatar, and Secretary Blinken does plan to visit both of those countries on Tuesday before he goes to Israel to meet with Netanyahu and other top Israeli officials. He's also planning to meet with the Palestinian Authority leaders in the occupied West Bank. He wants to make sure that if there's a new hostage deal, and again, we don't know if this will come anytime soon, that all sides will be ready to start thinking about the long term, about a future for Gaza where a reformed Palestinian Authority and not Hamas would be in control. But the problem, Sasha, is that we have to get a hostage deal first, and the ball is in Hamas's court. At least that's what U.S. officials are saying. We mentioned at the top that you are in Saudi Arabia. What role is Saudi Arabia playing in this? It's interesting. You know, before the war broke out, the Biden administration was negotiating with Saudi Arabia on a normalization deal with Israel. And Blinken still sees that as a viable option once the war in Gaza ends. But the Saudis want some things from the U.S. in return, so they're talking about that. And Israel wants a clear pathway to Palestinian statehood. Again, this all seems pretty far off given where things are now with the war raging in Gaza. But those are just some of the things that Blinken's here talking about. There's also this medium-term problem of who runs Gaza and who provides security once Israel says it's achieved its goals. So he's begun talking to Arab leaders about some of those practical things. You have reported, Michelle, on some of the criticism that Blinken and the Biden administration have faced at home and around the world. The latest was an open letter from more than 800 civil servants in the U.S. and Europe calling on the U.S. to use its leverage with Israel to end the war. Is that making a difference? Well, he's heard the criticism. There are protesters outside his house. But at this point, his aides don't think that the time is right to put pressure on Israel. Not now when there's a new hostage deal on the table one the U.S. wants Hamas to accept, so they want the pressure to be focused there. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you. Thank you. King Charles III has cancer. Fewer than 18 months into his reign, the British monarch is suspending public duties. But Buckingham Palace says he will continue with the paperwork of state business as he undergoes outpatient treatment. And that treatment began today in London. That is where NPR's Lauren Freyer is based, and she joins us from our studio there. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Mary Louise. Tell us more about the king's diagnosis and and his prognosis. We actually don't know what type of cancer it is. King Charles was hospitalized recently for an enlarged prostate. That condition was benign. Mm -hmm. But Buckingham Palace says in the course of that treatment, another, quote, separate issue of concern was noted and that subsequent tests have identified a form of cancer. No word on what type or what stage. The palace says the king today began treatment and that he remains, quote, wholly positive. So while he will postpone public duty, 
duties. He's expected to continue meeting weekly with the prime minister, for example. He'll keep getting those red boxes. They're called ministerial or dispatch boxes, literally red wooden boxes with government documents in them. He gets those daily, and he's expected to continue to do so throughout his treatment. Yeah, I remember those red boxes from uh, from. The, the Crown. Too many hours yeah, of my life crown. spent watching The Crown on Netflix. <laughs> exactly. all, all the red boxes. I, I want to follow up on what on just practically what this means, because as King, he's a celebrity, but he also plays a, a key constitutional role in the UK. What happens when he suspends public duties? He does. So the king's role is ceremonial, but as you say, it's important. And there are long-standing protocols in place for this. The king's private secretary is in touch with the private secretaries of the prime minister and that of the cabinet office. If the king is incapacitated, councillors of state are appointed to act on his behalf. But the palace has indicated that those are not required at this point. Now, if that changes, Queen Camilla could step in as a councillor of state. So could the next four adults in line for the throne. So that would be the king's two sons, Prince William and Prince Harry, then the king's brother, and then his eldest child, the king's niece. And just to emphasize, as king, he is head of state, right? He, Yeah, totally. And so that really comes into play during elections. And the UK is expected to hold an election by the end of this year. The king has a big role in that. He dissolves parliament. He appoints a new prime minister to form a new government. Councillors of state could possibly do that for the king, but it would have to be with his explicit permission and authorization. I'm thinking, Lauren, this comes, of course, a year and a half after uh, the royal family and the UK lost Queen Elizabeth II. What has been the reaction to this announcement there in Britain and, and internationally? Yeah, so the news came after sundown here, after the working day was over, but already um, condolences are pouring in. President Biden has said he's concerned about King Charles. Former President Trump called the king a wonderful man. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the whole country wishes him well. I mean, Charles waited sort of all of his life to become king. He was 73 when his mother Elizabeth II died. He's the oldest person ever to ascend the throne here. So there's sympathy that he's facing a health challenge, you know, so soon after taking the throne. And have we heard from the rest of the royal family? I'm thinking in particular about about the king's sons. Yeah, so the king personally notified his siblings as well as his children about his diagnosis. Prince Harry, um, you'll recall, quit royal duties back in 2020 and is now based in California with his American wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. He is actually en route to London to be with his father right now. It's also a difficult situation for Prince William, Harry's brother, um, especially because his wife, Kate, is currently recovering from abdominal surgery. She was hospitalized recently for two weeks, in fact, in the same London hospital where the king had his prostate treatment. And so William, the heir to the throne, has been nursing his wife and now has this news of his dad's diagnosis. But as you know, Mary Louise, the Brits have this slogan, keep calm and carry on. And it's an emotional time for the royals here, but it will also increase their workload, at least for some of them, as Queen Camilla and as Prince William and others take on more of the public duties while the king is undergoing this treatment. That is NPR's Lauren Frere, keeping calm and carrying on in London. <laughs> Thank you. Will do. Thanks. Dartmouth College, the Ivy League school in New Hampshire, has announced that it is reinstating the standardized test requirement for next year's application cycle. It's an effort to get more economic diversity. Dartmouth is among hundreds of schools that went test optional during the pandemic. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports. 
The decision to bring back the SAT and ACT testing requirements to Dartmouth was based on new research conducted by a group of professors at the college. They found evidence that disadvantaged students didn't include their scores, but should have. We're missing out. We, we find ourselves missing out on some great students. That's Bruce Sasserdote, an economics professor at Dartmouth and one of the researchers. He says students from disadvantaged backgrounds, the first in their family to go to college or from lower income families, submitted their test scores at far lower rates. But their scores were high enough and might have helped them get in. We can see in the data, oh, wow, that student, boy, they had a 1450, they even had a 1500. We didn't even know that. And they were not admitted to Dartmouth. And boy, in the context of their background, that is a really outstanding score. And uh, that would have been a really great piece to have. Dartmouth pulled this data from years when they were test optional. Before the pandemic, there was a small but mighty wave of colleges that were ditching the ACT and SAT in college admissions. Then COVID happens and the sort of the wave of test optional becomes a kind of tsunami. That's Harry Fader with Fair Test, an advocacy organization that tracks test optional colleges. According to Fair Test, there are more than 1,900 colleges and universities that are test optional meaning students can decide whether they want to submit their standardized test scores along with their college applications. The Dartmouth researchers found that prospective students might not know how to make that decision. Sasserdote says the college is working on ways to better communicate to students what a helpful score would be. Research has shown that there is a correlation between standardized test scores and family income, and advocates say that link ultimately hurts students from marginalized backgrounds when it comes to admissions. But the College Board, the organization behind the SAT, and Sasserdote at Dartmouth say students are disadvantaged by inequities in the education system, not tests. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. In about 15 minutes, heavy rain is causing flooding in California and knocking out power. Scientists are still working to understand the relationship between climate change and the phenomenon of atmospheric rivers. That story and more coming up on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. And the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org. Support WBUR when you send the perfect gift to your Valentine anywhere in New England. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. A big drop for the Dow today. It fell about seven-tenths of a percent. S&P retreated from its record high of last week. Today, it lost about three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ dipped two-tenths of a percent. Uber says it's laying off nearly 170 people and closing its office in Back Bay, Boston. Uber says the cuts are related to its closure of the alcohol delivery service Drizzly. The layoffs will begin in April. Drizzly announced last month it would shut down the service and fold it into existing brands. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. 
Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Nice bright afternoon, but we should have overcast skies tonight. A few cold wind gusts, about 26 degrees for low. And for tomorrow, gray skies for the most part, temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday should start off cloudy, but then sunshine should push its way in by the afternoon. Temperatures about 40 degrees. 39 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In 2020, President Biden won Nevada by just under three percentage points. Democratic organizers in the state are already on the ground arguing that the road to the White House goes through Nevada, and they are trying to promote Biden's policies as a reason why voters should support him. NPR's Jimena Bustillo has more. Nevada Democrats have one job in 2024, motivate voters to turn back out for Joe Biden. We have the receipts. We've done the work. Now it's making sure people know it. That's Hillary Barrett, executive director of the Nevada State Democratic Party. It's a really big message, which makes it hard for voters to connect the dots. Plus, Nevada is a swing state in 2024, so the stakes are high. We saw last cycle that our senator won by 8,000 votes. That's a tiny margin, so that means we have to be in every community talking to every voter. Democrats say Nevada has benefited big time from the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, two of Biden's legislative wins. For example, according to Climate Power, a progressive group, the state will get $12 billion for energy projects and 15,000 new jobs, both among the highest in the nation. But policies don't always translate to voters. Not like many people have heard about this. And the few that have heard about it, they don't know exactly what it is or what it does. That's Cynthia Moore with the Nevada Environmental Justice Coalition. They have been talking to voters in Las Vegas neighborhoods hardest hit by hot temperatures. Over 60% of the people in these communities are renters. So even if they did know about the program and they wanted to act as it, they wouldn't qualify just because they are renting. Both Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris visited the state ahead of the Tuesday primary to get voters excited about everything from prescription drug price caps for seniors to major infrastructure builds. The Bright Line is a high-speed rail from Las Vegas to Southern California. That's Vince Saavedra from the Southern Nevada Building Trades Union. It's going to create... In Southern Nevada, probably roughly 3,000 jobs, 100 new jobs, like for people with no construction experience, which is huge. There has been talk of this rail line for years, but new funding from the federal government is finally getting it off the ground. And one major constituency in Nevada, union members, are seeing the connection to Biden. I think that our union members are starting to slowly get it. I think that to get them to understand the infrastructure piece, they, they get it for sure. But these projects are by design slow to start. That's why people like Jarrett Clark with For Our Future are trying to connect with voters early. A lot of things that we're hearing from voters on the ground uh, are those issues that might affect their bank account, 
first, uh, whether that's higher bills, higher energy costs. That's something that we're hearing quite a bit about. So For Our Future is trying to communicate the immediate and long-term benefits to voters. Democrats have to win the win. Now we have to make sure that, that organizations like ours and Democrats largely own it and take credit. But not everyone is sold. Veronica Ybarra is a Las Vegas resident who voted for Biden last time. I've always been Democrat. But like I said, I don't know about this year. Right now, no. The, the primary didn't even. I will find out and see what happens. Yeah. But, but something has to give. Democrats in the state are closely watching the primary election results so they can better map out the next nine months of who to reach, where to reach them, and what they care about. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Las Vegas. Jay-Z has 24 Grammy Awards, and he won an honorary Grammy last night. But when he went up to speak, he criticized the Recording Academy for ignoring black artists like his wife, Beyonce. I don't want to embarrass this young lady, but she has more Grammys than everyone and never won album of the year. So even by your own metrics, that doesn't work. And he's not the only one making this criticism. For some perspective, we have NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiokas. Hi. Hey, Sasha. So Jay-Z's remarks have caused a lot of chatter, but there are some exceptions to his criticism. I'm thinking about the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, which won Album of the Year in 1999. That was a really big moment for hip hop, and it was the last time a black female artist won. Both of those things are true. And interestingly, Sasha, that was also a year led by female artists. Back then, there were only five nominees for Album of the Year. And that year, they were all solo female artists or women fronted bands. So we know there was Lauryn Hill, but also Sheryl Crow, Madonna, Shania Twain, and the band Garbage with singer Shirley Manson. And there's another exception, uh, Outkast. Uh, Speaker Box, The Love Below, that won Album of the Year in 2004. And that, I think, was the only other hip-hop album to do so. Of course, that was 20 years ago. So some people are making the case that hip-hop as a whole has been ignored. How, how fair is that? Well, we have this situation in which the most influential genre on the planet is shut out of the music industry's biggest prize now decade after decade. And I have to say, Sasha, not only was I a voting member of the Grammys during that outcast era, I was also a judge in one of the categories that wasn't open to the general membership voting. I left being a Grammy judge and voter when I joined NPR, but that year that Outkast won, one of the other nominees for Album of the Year was Missy Elliott for her album Under Construction. And at least to me back then, it felt like a certain tide was maybe starting to turn. At the end of the day, though, that didn't happen. You know, the Oscars, as you certainly know, have made a push to diversify their membership and their picks. Has anything like that happened with the Grammys? Yes and no. Back in 2018, the Recording Academy, which is the organization that gives out the Grammys, pledged that it would diversify its membership after it endured heavy criticism, not just for sidelining Black artists, but women overall as well. Infamously, the then-CEO Neil Portnow told Variety that if women want to find places for themselves in the music industry, they had to, quote, step up. Unsurprisingly, there was a lot of pushback to that, and people asking the Grammys to do better. And back then, I asked the Academy, and it turned out they weren't asking their members for their demographics. And frankly, you can't improve what you don't track. Also, you have to cross certain hurdles to become a voting member with a certain number of album credits. And that privileges folks who have been working in the industry for a while. 
So they've made membership more accessible, but not necessarily those people have become voting members. But if the Grammy voting membership is starting to look different, then why haven't we seen that shift in its voting? There are some structural issues at hand here, Sasha. First of all, there are something like 21,000 Recording Academy members, but still only something like 12,000 of them are eligible to vote for the Grammys at all. And the Grammys have a whopping 94 categories now. That's way more than the Oscars. And the members can only vote in those six major categories, things like Album of the Year and Record of the Year and Best New Artist. That's it. Otherwise, they can only vote in three genre fields that they specialize in. So that often means for those big major categories, voters still vote for the most mainstream names, the ones they know the best. So maybe you like Taylor Swift or someone you know does, and then you vote for her and she continues her world domination. That's NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiogas. Thanks, Anastasia. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Florida, a bill that would ban kids younger than age 16 from social media platforms. It's making its way through the legislature. Advocates say the ban goes too far. That story and much more coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals, aafcpa.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Senate is preparing to hold its first vote this week on bipartisan legislation that would strengthen security at the southern border. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the upper chamber is moving ahead with the bill, despite attempts in the House to tank it. The $64,000 question now is whether or not senators can drown out the outside noise drown out people like Donald Trump who want chaos and do the right thing. House Speaker Mike Johnson has been under increasing pressure from Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump and the hard right to reject the bill. A powerful storm is lashing parts of Southern California with torrential rain. The National Weather Service has issued flash flood warnings as a second atmospheric river continues to barrel through the state. NPR's Nathan Rott reports Los Angeles could receive close to six months' worth of rain by tomorrow. 
Forecasters say the atmospheric river that's caused flooding and power outages from San Francisco to Los Angeles has stalled over the L.A. area, meaning more rain on already saturated ground. The National Weather Service is calling it an extremely dangerous situation along the Santa Monica Mountains, which run just above the L.A. basin. Numerous communities are experiencing mud flows and debris flows, and there's a concern that the additional rain could trigger more. Further inland, forecasters are now warning of excessive rainfall in Orange County and parts of the Inland Empire through Tuesday morning. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Ventura, California. Stocks on Wall Street closed lower today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 274 points. The Nasdaq Composite down 31. The S&P 500 fell 15 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A local advocacy group is raising concern about the bipartisan proposal in the U.S. Senate to restrict immigration at the southern border. The deal would make it more difficult for migrants to claim asylum. Elizabeth Sweet heads the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She calls the bill inhumane and un-American. It doesn't move us toward creating a truly functional asylum system. Instead, it's gutting the asylum system and pouring more money into border enforcement and detention. Sweet says immigration reform should also prioritize creating a pathway to legal status for undocumented people living in the U.S. Governor Moore Healy supports the bill. She says it will make progress toward fixing the broken federal immigration system. Berkeley College of Music is celebrating its alumni winners at the Grammys last night. 2021 graduate Leve won her first Grammy for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album. A group of alumni that make up the band Golden Highway won Best Bluegrass Album. Alums who worked on Taylor Swift's album Midnight's and Miley Cyrus's song Flowers also won awards. And forget Groundhog Day. Today is the real sign that spring is just around the corner, at least for Red Sox fans. It's truck day. That's the day when the team's equipment truck is loaded up at Fenway Park before it departs for the Sox spring training home in Fort Myers, Florida. Sarah McKenna is the team's chief experience officer. She explains why truck day means so much. It's just about being full of hope. It's about optimism. It's about better days ahead. It's about longer days in the sunshine and that warmth and that togetherness that we all get when we're collectively together at Fenway Park. The team truck is expected to complete its nearly 1,500-mile journey to South Florida Thursday. The team's first spring training game is scheduled for February 23rd. It's 434. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Been a lovely start to the work week, but looks as if clouds should take over tonight. A cold wind tonight, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow should bring in more clouds, temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday, clouds in the morning, then sunny skies take hold in the afternoon. Right about 40 degrees tops. Could get milder as the week goes on. 39 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. 
and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Heavy rain and strong winds are thrashing California. Hundreds of thousands of people are still without electricity in the northern and central parts of the state. And Los Angeles is dealing with flooding and mudslides. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here with details. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. What is making this particular storm so damaging? So the storm is very large. It's what's called an atmospheric river. So it's basically a river of moisture in the air flowing from the area around Hawaii over to California. This one is lingering over Southern California, especially Los Angeles, dumping half a foot of rain or more. And that's why there's so much flooding in that part of the state. The other thing about this storm is that it got really powerful really quickly right before it hit land uh, around the San Francisco Bay Area yesterday. That meant really damaging wind. There were gusts of upwards of 100 miles an hour. Those are hurricane force winds. So that's why you saw so many power outages. You know, a lot of trees and power poles came down. We know that a lot of extreme weather events are being affected by climate change. What about this one? So it's an active area of research, actually, for atmospheric rivers. You know, scientists expect that atmospheric rivers, which are basically big rainstorms, right, will get more intense as the planet warms. That's what climate models suggest. That said, atmospheric rivers are very complicated, and scientists can't say for sure that they're already getting more intense. What we do know for sure is that climate change makes heavy rain more likely around the world. And that's because as humans burn oil and gas and coal, it obviously emits carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that trap heat. And that heat heats up the air. Warmer air can hold more moisture, which then falls as heavier rain. It's obviously alarming to see these images of flooded roads across L.A., this major metropolitan area. How ready Mm -hmm. is California for this type of rain? Well, yeah, a lot of rain in a short period of time, it does put strain on infrastructure, things like roads and dams, storm drains, retaining walls. You know, these are things that offer important protection for people from flooding, and they're built to withstand a certain amount of water. When you get more water than that, that's when you have problems. Climate researcher Daniel Swain says the current infrastructure is not necessarily built for the current or future climate. We build our infrastructure to particular thresholds. We don't have storm drains that magically get 5%, 10% bigger per degree of warming. We built them decades ago, and they're there. So right now, for example, storm drains in some parts of L.A. can't keep up with all the water, which leads to those flooded roads and neighborhoods. Rebecca, you recall that last winter, California also got hit with atmospheric rivers. Does that indicate Mm -hmm. that we should be prepared for this to happen every year? You know, not necessarily. Remember, rainstorms are a part of California's normal weather, especially this time of year. Some years, forecasters expect there to be less intense rain, some years more intense. But with climate change, it is true that heavy rain is getting more likely. So really intense events like what happened last winter with the flooding in many parts of California or what L.A. is experiencing locally right now, those are getting more common. One way to think about it is that in the past, maybe you could expect to experience extreme rain and the flooding that goes with it a few times over the course of your life. Now, it's more like every few years, so that's a big change. And it's good to remember, you know, that's true in California, but it's also true in much of the rest of the U.S., where climate change is also causing heavier rain and more flooding. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thank you. Thanks.
To a question now prompted by the U.S. military strikes on Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria and Yemen, these strikes are in retaliation for the January 28th attack that killed three American soldiers stationed in Jordan. And the question is, why does the U.S. have troops in Jordan? Why is the U.S. military on the ground at all in the Middle East with the war in Iraq long over? Well, to help answer that, Charles Lister, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, joins us. Hi there. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Where exactly does the U.S. have troops in the Middle East that we know of? Well, we have a wide range of of various troop deployments, large significant bases, particularly in the Gulf, in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait. Uh, We have presence in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, Jordan, and and a number of other places. Okay. And what are these troops doing? As I noted, this is years after the U.S. ended its combat mission in Iraq. And with ISIS, which the U.S. has been there to fight or or help uh, train local troops to to fight, with ISIS a much diminished force. Yes. I mean, this is obviously a, a key question, but it really comes down to something quite simple. I mean, in large part, we have roughly... 30,000 troops deployed across the Middle East. The vast majority of those are there specifically because specific host governments have asked us to be there. And in almost all cases, that's generally for the same reason, which is that our presence is perceived to contribute towards either the kind of reality of stability in the region or to contribute towards a sense of deterrence to keep their territories safe. And And what does the U.S. get out of it? Yeah, so the U.S. has, of course, an interest in keeping or at least in seeking to keep the Middle East stable. The Middle East is also situated in an area of the world where it's the center of uh, the, the world's energy, economy and production. The days of the United States being dependent on Middle East oil are long, long gone. But the United States has a key and a core interest in making sure that the world's energy markets remain secure and stable. Uh, beyond that, as we're seeing uh, with, the, with the military campaign uh, that the Houthis are launching from Yemen these days, the waterways of the Middle East are absolutely central to international trade. And if that is ever threatened, there are immediate knock-on effects to the world economy, and that includes the United States. You mentioned that U.S. troops are there nearly always at the invitation of the host country. Um, They want us there. What about the people of these countries, who in some cases are are against the presence of U.S. troops, in some cases outright hostile? Yes, well, I think that's probably just the reality. I think the key is that the governments of the region want us there in almost all cases. Really, the only exception here is is Syria. But in many cases, like Iraq, uh, and there's a big debate at the moment publicly about the state of the American military presence in Iraq, we face these strange situations whereby privately the government is telling us they want us there, but publicly they're having to assuage the concerns of their own populations and express public expressions of, of, of opposition to the U.S. presence. And of course, that places the United States in a very tricky situation. What is the risk versus benefit calculus of keeping an American military footprint on the ground? It's sadly a, a timely question with three American troops killed and dozens more wounded in Jordan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially at times like this, after this recent uh, deadly attack in Jordan on the Syrian border, it is the right time to, to be asking these questions. I mean, ultimately, no military deployment anywhere in the world comes without any risk. But within this debate, the most important thing for me, at least, is to consider the consequences of disengagement or withdrawal. 
And in almost all cases, the consequences of a US withdrawal are far more risky from a specifically American standpoint or an international security standpoint than the risks associated with staying. Charles Lister, Senior Fellow and Director of the Syria and Counterterrorism and Extremism Programs at the Middle East Institute. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Several state legislatures are considering bills that would ban kids and teens from social media. That's amid concerns about mental health and safety online. In Florida, lawmakers want to ban kids under age 16 from having accounts on apps like Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat. The proposal raises questions about how much state governments can do to regulate kids' digital lives. Adrian Andrews from member station WFSU reports. Matthew Graholski is a 19-year-old student at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. He says he struggled with depression and anxiety as a kid, but he found community online. Social media always was a vessel for me. It was always something that I could use to just get through some really hard times. Graholski loves Snapchat for sharing pictures and videos, chatting with his friends, and endlessly scrolling through content. I met really good friends online and not too many in person, primarily just because I was kind of isolated. A bill working through the Florida legislature would delete social media accounts owned by users under the age of 16. It would target apps that have certain features like autoplay and photo manipulation. Republican State Representative Tyler Soroy is one of the sponsors of the bill. He says kids are vulnerable and social media companies are taking advantage of them. That's their business model. And why do they do it? To keep them hooked with the dopamine hits that these platforms give our children with every autoplay, with every like, with every push notification. Supporters of the bill say social media is too addictive for kids. Dr. Mitch Prinstein with the American Psychological Association says screen time and the like button can work like a drug, especially to young people. Kids are really interested in connecting with their peers, getting positive information from them or praise, and it feels really good. It's the same kind of reaction to getting an illegal substance. There is bipartisan support in Congress to regulate social media for kids, but federal lawmakers so far haven't agreed on a national standard. Meanwhile, state legislatures across the country are pushing to limit young people online. A ban in Arkansas would have required anyone under age 18 to get parental permission to create a social media account. But a federal court ruled the law was a burden on free speech. There are some significant data privacy concerns and uh, constitutionality concerns related to the age verification portions of this bill. Calder Harville Childs is the public policy manager for Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. He says, as is currently written, Florida's bill won't survive a legal challenge. And it would be incredibly difficult for the company to verify ages for its hundreds of millions of users. Everyone would be required to submit some form of identification, whether it be a government ID, driver's license, passport, or, you know, a biometric scan, if you will, of their face to to do an age estimate um, in order for them to access the social media app. Florida college student Matthew Kuroholsky says he understands lawmakers are just trying to keep children safe, but he worries a social media ban would suppress the voice of an entire generation. 
there's some great ideas that are behind the bill, but in reality, you're really just leading to more censorship of kids in America. Florida's bill has already passed out of the state House of Representatives, but lawmakers are still considering changes. For NPR News, I'm Adrian Andrews in Tallahassee. Support for All Tech Considered comes from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com, and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Overcast skies overnight tonight. Overcast again tomorrow for the most part with temperatures in the mid-30s tomorrow. 39 degrees now in Boston. The men's beanpot hockey tournament begins today at the Garden. Harvard and Northeastern clash in the first game. It starts at 5 o'clock. Boston University takes on Boston College in the second game at 8 o'clock. Bruins and Celtics both have the night off tonight. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has, its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The 2024 presidential election is looking more and more like it's going to be a repeat of 2020. Trump versus Biden, with Fox News and others in conservative media lining up behind the former president. But in the last four years, Fox has paid hundreds of millions of dollars to settle one lawsuit. It's facing another. And imitators are trying to get a piece of Fox's conservative viewership. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick has reported on all of this, and he's with us now. Hi, David. Hey, Ari. David, we heard Ron DeSantis say Fox chose to back Trump, and that's why Trump is dominating the primaries. Is that true? Well, I mean, look, give him high marks for audacity. It's true as far as it went in terms of its surrounding Trump now, but Fox uh, started the primary season sort of last spring by embracing Ron DeSantis. Uh, You saw him called the future on the the front pages of the New York Post, its sister newspaper tabloid. And Fox then essentially, I wouldn't say it 
fully endorse Ron DeSantis, but it gave him a chance to fully audition with the voters. It gave him hour after hour of favorable coverage, of gentle interviews, of you know things like announcements of endorsements, uh, the kind of treatment they, in a sense, gave back to Trump in 2016. And he tanked the audition. The voters really didn't respond. We saw that in polls, and we really saw that starting in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Trump was actually mad at Fox for the amount of time that they were lavishing on DeSantis because Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch wanted him to have the chance to to claim the title. So now Fox is leaping to meet the expectations of its viewers and Trump's voters. It's playing defense for Trump just as DeSantis is now describing by picking on DeSantis by picking on Nikki Haley and by picking on President Joe Biden. Well, if Fox gave DeSantis all of these softballs and DeSantis whiffed, that suggests Fox might not be the kingmaker it once was. Look, Fox very much wants to look like a kingmaker, and the truth is just more complicated. If you think about it in years past, Roger Ailes, uh, the longtime chairman of Fox News, and Rupert Murdoch himself were very interested in having CIA director David Petraeus take on Barack Obama during uh, his re-election uh, campaign in 2012. There was a little 2016 uh, boomlet around uh, Rand Paul, the Kentucky senator. It's not that Murdoch can dictate or determine who the next candidate is going to be, but they have their favorites, they have their interests, and yet... You know, the Murdochs very much are pragmatists. They want both somebody conservative and somebody they can do business with in the White House. But even if Fox is not a kingmaker, it's a super important player here. Uh, Let's talk about the settlement with Dominion voting systems, because Fox had to pay close to $800 million for the false claims it made after the 2020 elections. Does that make it less likely that Fox will promote conspiracy theories and lies going forward? Well, there are two things, right? The question of conspiracy theories and the question of the person that those conspiracy theories are intended to prop up, and that's Donald Trump. Then as now you're seeing Fox pivot to this full embrace of Trump. We learned through the evidence that surfaced and became public during the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News that they didn't find Trump particularly palatable. They didn't buy into his supposed populist appeal. The Murdochs, uh, their stars, their executives were chasing after his voters who were their core viewers. The biggest change that people will see may well be the departure of Tucker Carlson, his huge audiences, and yes, the conspiracy theories that he was perhaps one of the key figures peddling. But, you know, he's been replaced by Jesse Waters, consider Jesse kind of a Tucker light, and he's doing fine antagonizing liberals, saying truly offensive things, and yet largely avoiding outright defamatory claims. One change I've noticed is that there are these oases of sanity. Neil Cavuto has been pretty consistent about sticking to the facts by and large, but Steve Ducey, one of the stars of Fox and Friends, one of the key outlets and vehicles through which uh, Trump was able to make his claims and his surrogates were able to make outrageous claims, Ducey has been reminding co-hosts and viewers of inconvenient facts time and again when failed policies had to do with decisions under the Trump administration, not the Biden years, how well the economy is doing, how scant a lot of the evidence is in the Hunter Biden investigations that Joe Biden did anything wrong. With all due respect, the Republicans need better investigators because they've got a lot of circumstantial evidence, but they have not shown that Joe Biden profited personally oh, they're doing or that he broke any rules. I John vehemently Sal, disagree. Right? It's all circumstantial. This is, okay. un- this is so... No, no, let me finish. And so I think that you're seeing Fox basically try to pull itself in moments back from the brink, even as it's desperate to give its voters the verisimilitude of the kind of conspiracy theory, QAnon-adjacent matter that a lot of them found so attractive. 
other conservative TV outlets are trying to take a piece of Fox News's audience, OAN, Newsmax, etc. How successful are they? Are they a serious threat to Fox? Well, I think the reason that they haven't been more successful is that Fox decided to embrace the crazy. I think that's what we saw after the 2020 election, where they allowed election lies to be peddled. And they have tapered and pulled back from that, but they have not utterly rejected a lot of the spurious claims. OAN and Newsmax, nonetheless, and I I would say Newsmax more than OAN, have retained a certain kind of audience and a pull. They are uh, an influence on Fox as well as an influence on the more fringy figures in the a House Republican conference in particular, really appealing to the most right wing of right wing audiences. And of course, OAN really has been uh, deplatformed largely after, you know, their most egregious lies about uh, Dominion Smartmatic. And yet, you know, they still go viral online on X and other social media platforms. So they are still participating in what people are hearing and thinking as they go online to consume political content. The conservative media fragmentation or flowering, however you want to characterize it, goes beyond TV. Who are some of the other major players right now? Well, I think you got to credit uh, Ben Shapiro, who's really built up uh, something of an empire at the Daily Wire. Charlie Kirk uh, was kind of a student activist, youth activist uh, in far right circles, CPAC and other elements of the far right, who has become a media figure as well, both on social media through his uh, radio show and Internet presence. And then there are all these former Fox figures. Eric Bowling is one of the stars of Newsmax. Megyn Kelly, who had a disastrous run at NBC after she left Fox, uh, reinvented herself once more as sort of a hard right figure, uh, her own podcast online. She just struck a pretty big deal with Sirius XM. And of course, Tucker Carlson himself, he's never going to necessarily have the same sway that he had when he was 8 p.m. host on Fox News, but he's got a video program he's attempting on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And he also, you know, still retains enough uh, affinity, affection and influence in right wing circles that Trump has allowed it to be uh, uh, suggested that uh, Carlson could be one of his potential vice presidential uh, candidates. What does this all mean for Donald Trump? Well, at the moment, you know, he is uh, harnessing the energy from all of that anarchic thrust. uh, And he's also getting the embrace of Fox News. So what we're really learning is that Fox rather than being the kingmaker, uh, is embracing the king after the crowd has decided, or, or, or almost a little bit like at the Roman Colosseum. You know, the emperor looks at the crowd, thumbs up, thumbs down. The fate is decided by the crowd. That's NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Thanks. You bet. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org. 
Should be cold and windy overnight tonight, about 26 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, generally cloudy in the mid-30s. Wednesday, sunshine, but not until the afternoon, inching up to about 40 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org slash summer. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A $118 billion border and national security agreement began as a feat of bipartisanship. The bill reforms the asylum approval process so that claims are heard in six months, not 10 years, as is often the case today. How politics are already threatening the bill coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead, a woman who's running for a state house seat in Republican-led Tennessee, never expected to go into politics, but after she got devastating news about her pregnancy, everything changed. And an effort by Democrats to investigate a nicotine product called Zin has led to a backlash from Republicans. I don't think when Chuck Schumer had that first press conference a couple weeks ago, he was aware of the cultural power that Zin had among some conservatives. More on the controversy about Zin coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. America's top diplomat is back in the Middle East, meeting Saudi Arabia's crown prince before heading off to Egypt and Qatar. As NPR's Michelle Kelman explains, the U.S. is pushing for a new deal for Gaza that would see a long pause in fighting in exchange for release of hostages held by Hamas. The secretary met for about two hours with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but didn't speak to reporters as he returned to his hotel in Riyadh. The State Department says the two continued discussions on a post-war Gaza and talked about the urgent need to reduce regional tensions. This is his fifth trip to the region since the war in Gaza began. He's planning stops in Egypt, Qatar, Israel, and the occupied West Bank. This latest trip comes as the U.S. has been striking at Iranian-backed militias in the region, including in Yemen. The Biden administration says it doesn't want an escalation, but will target militias that attack U.S. troops in the region. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Riyadh. Britain's King Charles III has cancer. That's according to a statement from Buckingham Palace. NPR's Lauren Frey reports from London. Buckingham Palace says that while King Charles was hospitalized recently for an enlarged prostate, another, quote, separate issue of concern was noted, and that subsequent tests have identified a form of cancer. The statement doesn't specify which type. It does say the king has already started a schedule of regular treatments and that he remains, quote, wholly positive. Doctors have advised the 75-year-old monarch to postpone all public duties, but the statement says he'll continue to handle state business and paper 
paperwork as usual. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. While senators have released a highly anticipated $118 billion bill that pairs stiffer border enforcement with wartime aid for Ukraine and Israel, the measure is facing an uncertain future. House Speaker Mike Johnson has said the Senate bill won't clear the House. Hardline Republicans have savaged the proposal, saying the border restrictions are too weak, while some Democrats say they're too harsh. Former President Donald Trump has also actively campaigned against the measure, in part apparently over concerns it might allow President Biden to receive some credit for addressing the surge of migrants at the border. Another manufacturing problem affecting the completion of dozens of Boeing aircraft. Here's NPR Scott Horsley. Boeing, whose shares are part of the Dow Index, says it may have to delay delivery of about 50 new 737 aircraft after finding holes that were improperly drilled in the jets. One of the country's largest meat packers, Tyson Foods, reported better-than-expected quarterly profits after shuttering several of its chicken and beef processing plants. Many cattle ranchers thinned their herds two years ago in response to drought. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks closed lower on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 274 points, or roughly three-quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq fell 31 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Gloucester is getting just $144,000 as part of the state's Green Communities Program. Gemma Wilkins is the city's sustainability coordinator. She says the money will be used to help fund projects to reduce energy usage and cover things such as heat pumps and electrification. You want to electrify so you can power your facilities with renewables, or you can power your facilities with a grid that's powered by renewables. So electrification is sort of part of that story. For us, we're targeting areas where we see an infrastructural need in the city, and we know we're going to also have energy cost savings. The projects will be carried out at the city's schools, a fire station, and visitor center. The state's Republican Party says it's in a strong financial position heading into the election season. Mass GOP officials say the party raised close to $800,000 last year. The organization has also paid down $200,000 of debt. Mass GOP also plans to move its operations back to Boston. It had left the city in 2019 to cut costs. A Harvard professor is sharing her thoughts on teaching the university's first Taylor Swift themed class this semester. 300 students are enrolled in the class, which examines the songwriter's work through a literary lens. Professor Stephanie Bird is teaching the class. She tells WBR's Radio Boston that a prominent theme will be Swift's relationship with feminism. You can be a cis straight woman who really places a high value on smooching the right guy and still be empowered from that position and be an ally for other women. She sings about that and she makes musical choices often that reflect that. The course will examine her work era by era through each of her albums. Organizers announced today that Boston's 10K for Women is going to be held on Saturday, October 12th. The annual race is billed as New England's largest all-women's sporting event. More than 4,000 women and girls are expected to compete. In the forecast, cloudy and cold overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s tomorrow staying cloudy. Maybe a few shots of sunshine back to the mid-30s. Wednesday should get off to a gray start, but then sunshine eventually moving in during the afternoon, getting up to about 40 degrees, even milder as the week continues. 37 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. 
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's been just one day since senators released a bipartisan deal on border security. Election year politics are already putting that deal making at risk. That story is coming up. First, though, to California, where an atmospheric river continues to wallop the southern part of the state. Yesterday marked the 10th wettest day in the history of the city since 1877. 10th wettest day in the history of the city. That is L.A. Mayor Karen Bass speaking earlier today, and she says the danger is not over yet. L.A.ist science reporter Jacob Margolis joins me now from L.A. Hey, Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about this storm. Yeah, the impacts have been widespread across the state. I mean, it got crazy up in Northern California where winds reached 100 plus miles per hour. And according to our colleagues at KQED, knocked out power for more than a million customers. Um, Here in Southern California, though, seems to be where we're getting the hardest hit. Governor Newsom even had to proclaim a state of emergency from Santa Barbara to LA to San Diego counties. What happened is basically an especially heavy part of the storm parked itself right over the L.A. area and just dropped an astronomical 10 plus inches of rain in some spots, which for context, for those out there, is close to the average amount of rain we get for the entire year in L.A. Wow. 10 plus inches. Okay, you mentioned some power is out for some places. What other kind of damage Mm -hmm. is being reported? Oh, I mean, lots of flooding, trapped cars. There have been a number of landslides, so like mud and rocks come barreling down these steep hills and canyon roads, running into homes, um, like up in the mountains above Beverly Hills, where seven homes had to be evacuated. There have also been reports of people needing to be rescued from rushing water by special rescue crews. That said, things are still unfolding. There are different incidents going on. Um, And I'm sure we'll learn more over the next 24 hours. And remind us this atmospheric river. This is the storm system. That is what's causing this? Yeah. So people should think of an atmospheric river that's it's essentially a river of moisture in the sky. It travels from deep in the subtropics across the Pacific. It picked up a whole lot of water along the way. And now it's just slamming right into us, just squeezing every drop out over us. And these storms are typical for California. And they're actually how we get a lot of our moisture during the rainy season. So it's not uncommon for them to overwhelm infrastructure and flood roads and cause landslides. But what's interesting about this one is that we have this patch of warm water off the coast that's likely juicing the storm by sending more water and heat up into the sky. And the warm water off the coast, it's pretty typical, a strong El Nino years like the one that we're in right now. Is climate change playing a role in this weather? It is very tough to ascribe climate change to any one particular storm's intensity, including this one, because the conditions that lead to any one storm are so complex and multifaceted. That said, there is modeling that shows that climate change is expected to increase the size and intensity of atmospheric rivers in the coming decades, in part because a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor, which is, it's like more fuel for the atmospheric rivers. And the other thing that we've seen modeled out is this sort of whiplash from extreme wet to long periods of dry, uh, which California can naturally experience, but could get more extreme as the climate continues to change. And real quick, is more rain coming? Oh yeah, we gotta hold on to our hats through Tuesday. LAist Jacob Margolis holding his hat there in L.A. Thank you. Thank you.
Senate negotiators accomplished an election year feat. They reached a bipartisan deal to reshape U.S. border policies while also providing aid to Ukraine and Israel. But detractors, a long list of them, are already trying to shoot down that national security legislation. Here's the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat Chuck Schumer, hoping to salvage the deal on the floor today. This bipartisan agreement is not perfect. But given all the dangers facing America, it is the comprehensive package our country needs right now. Still, the election year timing, along with opposition from House Republicans, has some lawmakers warning that the deal-making may be reaching an end. NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, joins us from the Capitol. Hi, Claudia. Hey, Sasha. So this bill, $118 billion plan, give us some of the main provisions. Well, it directs $20 billion of that money to the border. This is a significant amount, along with pretty significant changes to border policy. President Biden touted the plan to reporters today, and he also addressed some of the Republican detractors of the bill. We need help. Why won't they give me the help all this time? And now they're starting about the, about the border. It's out of control. Well, guess what? Everything in that bipartisan bill gives me control, gives us control. For example, the bill would give him executive power to shut down the border if the number of migrants hits a certain threshold. It also narrows who can qualify for asylum and speeds up that process. It also expands access to work authorizations for those who are waiting for that asylum decision. Then there's $60 billion in aid to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, and this has been the center of a months-long debate here. But it seems like the bill is already on life support. So what are concerns about it that Republicans are raising? Well, one key critic is House Speaker Mike Johnson. He says the only answer is to pass a hardline bill that House Republicans passed months ago. It would purge undocumented workers and drastically cut asylum, among other things. So he called this bill dead on arrival, even though it has some money for a border wall and a lot of other conservative policy demands. Some Senate Republicans may not want to take this risky vote on a bill that they're being told will never get a vote in the House and cannot become law. Johnson has only been speaker for a little more than three months. What kinds of pressure is he facing when it comes to this bill? Well, he's navigating some spending bills through his chamber that are not popular with his hard right wing, and this is a chance for him to play on their side. Instead, since they're so, applo- they're so opposed to this border plan, you don't have to look far to see who is helping shape House Republicans' attitudes on it, and that's former President Trump. Trump, who's the lead contender to become the Republican nominee for president is vehemently opposed, and he said so on the Dan Bongino show today. This bill is a disaster. This bill has 5,000 people a day potentially coming into our country. It doesn't make sense. And there you hear Trump actually referring to a new limit under this proposal that would shut down the border if migrant border approaches reach 5,000. But this has become a big talking point for Johnson and other Republicans. These are obviously some very serious policy proposals in this bill. Is all of that work going to be crowded out by election year politics? We could see that happen. The crisis at the border is a big talking point for Republicans. If you were to say fix the border with this legislation, Republicans lose that argument on the campaign trail. So it would help... uh, perhaps address this issue, but it would hurt these Republicans who are trying to get reelection and also expand their reach here in Washington. So there's definitely a political calculation here for Republicans who want to preserve their best shot for presenting the best argument for their election to various offices. And 
to add to that is the chaos of a presidential election year. These are notoriously difficult years for Congress to do their job. We have divided government, a new House speaker still learning the ropes and navigating a very narrow majority and big worries of how this entire landscape will shift next year. So yeah, people are distracted and the time they invest is going to be the bare minimum when it comes to their political ambitions to make sure they win elections and expand their reach. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you. Judge Sarah Hill serves on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Oklahoma. She became the first Native American woman to join its bench when she was confirmed in December, and she begins at a busy time. Cases in the Northern District have increased since a 2020 Supreme Court decision that said much of the eastern part of Oklahoma is within a Native American reservation. That means certain major criminal cases have to be tried in the federal courts not state. As Elizabeth Caldwell of member station KWGS reports, Judge Hill has her work cut out for her. In a lounge at the University of Tulsa, a group of judges, professors, and tribal officials are gathered to celebrate something that has never happened in Oklahoma before. A Cherokee woman is now a judge in the Northern District. Sarah Hill joins just a handful of other federal Native judges to ever be appointed. I'm really excited about it. There's a lot of work to be done in the Northern District, but, you know, that's what I came to do. I came to work, so I'm excited to get into it. Hill was the Cherokee Nation's attorney general in 2020 when the Supreme Court issued the McGirt decision. It made half of the state tribal lands and upended Oklahoma's legal landscape. Hill says she's ready. Indian country is always changing. The definitions, the law is always changing. So to some extent, you're always on a frontier. Since the McGirt decision, cases in the Northern District have increased 400 percent, and they include more violent crimes involving tribal members. Before the McGirt ruling, those went to state courts. Hill's new colleague, federal judge Gregory Frizzell, says he welcomes her help. As the only full-time judge in the Northern District of Oklahoma for for the last year and a half, I am excited that uh, she is going to share some of the load of the 500-plus defendants that I have on my personal docket. That is a lot for one judge, according to legal scholars. Some have described what's happening as chaos, and things are likely to stay busy in Oklahoma. The McGirt ruling is facing court challenges. Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation Chuck Hoskin Jr. says a lot of issues will probably be settled by the Supreme Court. I think we're in a really interesting, potentially a time of potential progress, but also, depending on the decision, could move us backwards. We've got to be braced for that. Hoskins says the appointment of Hill falls on the side of progress. There may be some things going on in the country that might trouble you, but I can tell you right now, a Cherokee girl can grow up to be a federal district judge in this country as a Cherokee citizen. That's reason to celebrate. Hill, who is in her 40s, has a lifetime appointment. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Tulsa.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes, hospitals and insurers in Massachusetts have agreed to stop asking doctors about their history of mental health issues. The reason for the policy is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Send the perfect gift of Winston flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. In business, a big drop for the Dow today. It fell about seven-tenths of a percent. S&P retreated from its record high of last week. Today, it lost about three-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped just about two-tenths of a percent. The Burlington-based software firm Everbridge is going private in a $1.5 billion deal. It's being acquired by a Chicago-based investment firm. Everbridge software is used by the state and local governments to send out emergency cell phone alerts. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com and Volante Farms in Needham. With their warm greenhouse seating area, you can enjoy a coffee or handcrafted sandwich among the plants. Ours at VolanteFarms.com. Should be cloudy and cold overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Then for tomorrow, more clouds, maybe a few shots of sunshine here and there. Back up to the mid-30s. Wednesday, getting off to an overcast start. Then sunshine eventually moves in with temperatures about 40 degrees. Should get even milder as the week continues. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Reproductive rights are a big issue this election season. For one candidate in a Tennessee statehouse race, the issue is deeply personal, and her story is proving powerful to her candidacy. Katie Riddle reports. The path to politics began for Allie Phillips last year in her doctor's office. She was 19 weeks pregnant. The doctor delivered this devastating news about her unborn daughter. She said that they were only able to find two out of four working chambers in her heart. Incompatible with life. The first question I ask is, so what am I supposed to do now? Phillips is 28. She and her husband were excited about the pregnancy. They have one daughter already. They already had a name for this next one, Miley Rose. The doctor laid out the options. The first was to stay pregnant and brace for miscarriage. My second option, I could terminate my pregnancy, but due to Tennessee's ban, I could not do it here. I would have to look out of state, and she said that she couldn't offer me any resources. At the time, abortion was totally illegal in Tennessee. 
though the state has since added some narrow exceptions. So Phillips flew to New York to have the procedure. When she got there, the fetal heartbeat had already stopped. She was in danger of becoming septic. I'm very thankful for that clinic because they treated me like a human being, unlike my state did. Um, I felt like a very small person going through that situation. Shortly after that, she signed on with several other women suing Tennessee with the help of the Center for Reproductive Rights, hoping to change the state's austere law. Telling her story, she says, it helps. I posted every moment on TikTok because I wanted people to see what somebody has to go through when they live in a state like Tennessee. One person who saw her on TikTok, Charles Uffelman. He's the head of Montgomery County Democrats. That's where Allie Phillips lives. I was pretty inspired by it. Watching it, did a double take and realized she lives here. She lives in Clarksville. That's when he reached out to her, at first just to get involved with the party, eventually to run for a seat in Tennessee's House District 75. Uffelman is standing in Democratic headquarters in Montgomery County, an hour from Nashville. He's surrounded by campaign signs and flyers. He points to a map of his districts. They're not as blue as Nashville, but not as red as most of the state. Yeah, so we're over here in the Sango area, which is, you know, a little more folks commuting back and forth to Nashville. This is the Tennessee is one of nearly 20 states that has a Republican supermajority. That means they have large majorities in both legislative chambers and they control the governor's office. The district Phillips is in is one they've identified as flippable. Uh, it's, it's probably a little more suburban than the rest of Tennessee. Uh, the fight for breaking the supermajority is going to run through the suburbs. That's why they're concentrating on how suburban voters feel on issues like abortion. Like voter Jody O'Connor. She also lives in Clarksville. I have conservative values and I believe in Jesus Christ and all that. But that doesn't make me not want to have equal rights and rights for women. O'Connor is a realtor. She's 67. She voted for Trump, but she likes to call herself a Republicrat. Historically, she supported candidates from both parties. This year, Allie Phillips' race is pulling her left. Allie's got the vision and the, you know, the drive. O'Connor says she's still in disbelief that the Supreme Court repealed federal protection for abortion. That was a right she grew up with. She's relieved the next generation is taking on this cause, specifically this one member of Generation Z. You keep on going, girl, because that is what it's going to take, and hopefully she will win. Allie Phillips' platform is pegged to abortion rights. She also wants to fight for gun safety and improve education. Her opponent, incumbent candidate Jeff Burkhart, declined to be interviewed for this story. He's been quiet on the issue of abortion. I would recommend to any of our Republican candidates to just stay away from the issue. Doug England is with the Montgomery County Republican Party. On this day, he's overseeing the installation of new carpet at party headquarters. He says donations have been strong lately. They're feeling good about their platform, focusing on schools and business. Abortion, he says, not productive. You don't have to answer the questions that are entrapping. That strategy mirrors one that Republicans are taking across the state and the country. John Gere is a political scientist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville you know, poses a problem for the Republicans. That's because the majority of people, even in conservative Tennessee, want certain reproductive rights, like the right to end a pregnancy that isn't viable. Republicans want them, MAGAites want them, yet the state legislature is not inclined to do that. If indeed uh, Allie Phillips beats the incumbent, that would send a very strong signal. She doesn't even have to win in November, says Gear, to send a shock through the system. She just has to come close. Um, 
You're hungry. One recent night, Phillips talks to her six-year-old daughter. She's wondering about dinner. It's been a long day. Phillips still works full-time. She runs a daycare out of her house. Her husband is a forklift mechanic. Honey, I just, look, daddy's pulling up right now. Working and campaigning and parenting, it's a lot. But she says it's for the sake of her daughter's reproductive rights that she's doing this. It's my job as a mother to take care of my daughter and keep her safe. Running for office, she says, is her way of fighting for that safety, for her daughter and everyone else's daughters. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Clarksville, Tennessee. The death toll from forest fires raging in Chile has reached more than 120 people. It could climb higher. Hundreds remain missing. The country is observing two days of national mourning. Much of the western coast of South America has been gripped with extreme hot and dry weather due to an El Nino weather pattern this year. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. Volunteers work to clear fallen trees on the road around the once grand botanical gardens on the hill above the seaside cities of Valparaiso and nearby Viña del Mar. Forest fires roared through neighborhoods here, whipped by high winds burning everything in sight. Daisy Lambert helps her neighbors clear burned rubble and ashes. So many old people died. They burned inside their homes, she says. If I hadn't come and gotten my father and sister out, they would have died too, she says. Authorities say some bodies are so badly burned, identification is difficult. At least 3,000 homes have been lost or damaged. President Gabriel Boric promises government help for this, quote, grave emergency. This is the most catastrophic disaster to hit our country since the 2010 earthquake, says Boric. More than 500 people died then. Interior Minister Carolina Toa Morales says an investigation is underway into the cause of some of the biggest fires. There are plenty of signs, she says, that the blazes may have been intentionally set. The governor of Valparaiso region said over the weekend that four fires appeared to have begun at the same time. Alexander Kowalski's 50-year-old home miraculously is still standing. But the 45-year-old says his neighbors weren't so lucky. He says he's seen a lot of burned bodies, which has been very difficult. He and his neighbors are keeping guard throughout the night against looters, which he says is a problem, despite a 9 p.m. curfew. With John Bartlett in Valparaiso, Chile, I'm Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. In Britain, King Charles is taking a break from public duties as he undergoes outpatient treatment for cancer. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, what's known about the king's diagnosis. Also ahead, key takeaways from the Newton teacher's strike that is now history. Thanks a lot for listening. Coming to City Space Friday, February 16th, the Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst, told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s. More clouds tomorrow with high temperatures in the mid-30s. It's 530.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. And Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in health care built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting health care at bmc.org. Sending your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is providing more details on airstrikes targeting Iran-backed militants in Iraq, Syria and Yemen. Pentagon spokesman Major General Patrick Ryder says the U.S. hit dozens of targets in Iraq and Syria. Although we continue to evaluate, we currently assess that we had good effects and that the strikes destroyed or functionally damaged more than 80 targets at the seven facilities. The number of casualties is still being assessed. The strikes are in response to an attack on a U.S. military base in Jordan that killed three soldiers and wounded more than 40 other service members. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a tour through the Middle East to secure a new truce in Gaza. Britain's King Charles is being treated for cancer. Villa Marks reports the illness was discovered during a procedure he underwent last month for an enlarged prostate. Buckingham Palace has not revealed the kind of cancer that's been diagnosed, but said Charles has remained, quote, wholly positive about his treatment. The British King had said ahead of his recent prostate treatment that he wished to share unusually detailed information about it to raise awareness of the need for men to undergo regular prostate checks. The 75-year-old monarch is beginning what the palace called regular treatments, and he's suspended all public duties. The statement said he looked forward to returning to such work as soon as possible, but did not share details of the prognosis. He'll nevertheless remain as the constitutional head of state with full signing rights over government paperwork. For NPR News, I'm Bella Marks in London. Forest fires in Chile have killed at least 120 people since they broke out on Friday amid extreme heat. Officials say the fires are burning mainly around the city of Viña del Mar. More than 1,500 people have been displaced. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 274 points. The Nasdaq fell 31. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Ed Markey says he has not yet decided whether to support an emergency national security bill on Capitol Hill. The $118 billion bipartisan plan was released yesterday. It would tie assistance to Ukraine and Israel to tougher restrictions on migration across the U.S.-Mexico border. Markey says he supports aid for Ukraine, but he believes the measure falls short elsewhere. Obviously, a deal that would have been more satisfactory would have had a pathway to citizenship, which this bill does not. So I'm going to be studying it over the next couple of days. A test vote is set for Wednesday in the Senate. At least 60 votes are needed to advance the legislation. A new UMass Amherst poll finds there's little appetite for a Biden-Trump presidential rematch. Out of more than 1,000 people surveyed nationwide, 53 percent say it would have been better if Trump did not run this year. 57 percent say it would have been preferable for Biden not to seek re-election. The poll also found that a majority of Americans view both candidates as 
old, and roughly half say they're out of touch with issues facing the country. College hockey is king tonight in Boston. It is day one of the men's beanpot tournament at the TD Garden. Harvard and Northeastern are playing right now. The Huskies of Northeastern are up 1-0 in the first period. That game will be followed tonight by Boston College and Boston University at 8 o'clock. WBR's Fausto Menard reports it'll be the third time BU and BC clash in the past week and a half. Boston College took both games of a home-and-home series late last month. That knocked BU out of the top spot in the national rankings and propelled BC to number one in the country. Eagles freshman center Will Smith of Lexington says that's all in the past. He's looking forward to his first beanpot. I grew up going to this tournament every year, so it's been my dream to play in it. And he grew up going to the Bruins games too, so it's just all around a really special event for the whole state of Massachusetts and especially for uh, the four schools that are in it. BU last won the Beanpot two years ago. BC hasn't won it since 2016. The winner of tonight's game will play for the championship next Monday night against the winner of the Harvard-Northeastern matchup. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. It was a lovely start to the work week, but it looks as if clouds may take over tonight. Should have a cold wind, too. Lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, more clouds with temperatures in the mid-30s. Could see some sunshine later in the day on Wednesday. This is WBUR in Boston. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Maybe you've heard of those little nicotine pouches called Zin. You stuff them in your upper lip and absorb the nicotine orally. Last month, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer asked the FDA to investigate Zin and its effect on teens. And he may have unwittingly walked into a conservative culture war. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, quote, This calls for a Zinsurrection. North Carolina Representative Richard Hudson dared, quote, Big Brother Schumer to come and take it. David Wagel reported on this for Semaphore, and he's with us in the studio to explain. Hi, David. Hi, it's good to be here. How did these nicotine pouches, and specifically Zin, become so big among the right wing? Well, I noticed from talking to Democrats that they had no idea this was happening, but it was happening very openly on conservative media. Tucker Carlson, I would say, is the the first Zinfluencer who really mattered on the right. He semi-famously used to smoke, moved to nicotine gum, moved to Zin a couple years ago and swears by it. He calls it a a mind-enhancing drug. And he also came up with this heuristic, which I heard from a lot of conservatives, that right now the state from... Democrats to business-friendly Republicans. They want to legalize THC. They want to legalize marijuana, but they want to keep banning nicotine. Why is that? His construction was THC makes you lazy and compliant. Nicotine wakes you up and makes you achieve things. And I heard that from across the board. I started talking to Republicans about Zen. But there, of course, has been pushback and regulatory action before against nicotine in the tobacco industry. I'm thinking about the recent FDA actions on flavored vaping. How does this reaction to Zin compare to what we've seen before? Well, it's in that stream. And it really picked up in 2016. 
There was action from the Obama administration to get rid of flavored jewel flavors. And there was an organizing on the right around this. Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform was the best known person doing this, putting organizations together called Vape the Vote and getting people to go to vape shops, and especially in Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson, the senator, was up for re-election, tell people in vape shops, hey, you might not care about politics, but... Democrats are coming for your vapes and Republicans are not. Vote for Ron Johnson. So in your reporting, David, you quote someone saying that attempts by Democrats to crack down on Zinn is, quote, about to make a lot of people single issue Republican voters. Right. How much of that is hyperbole and how much do you think some voters would actually cast a ballot based solely on a politician's stance on nicotine? It's very small. Would Ron Johnson have won without a Vape the Vote campaign? Possibly. But the sort of voters who are receptive to that might not be voters. They might be people, and this is a lot of the MAGA Trump coalition, a lot of working class people who don't trust politicians, who don't pay a lot of attention, but they'll notice if they go to the gas station and something costs more, something's been taken off the shelf. Hey, what happened to this flavored pack I like? Well, it's gone. The governor regulated it. The FDA took it off all right, what do I do now? And the goal of some of this, it's very embryonic, getting conservatives to care about this, is saying, if you're angry about that, come out and vote Republican, we'll take care of it. By the way, how much do we know about the actual health impacts of nicotine pouches other than the fact that nicotine is addictive? We don't know as much yet in terms of whether they cause cancer. Now, you you do take it by putting your upper lip or in your lower lip. Nicotine salt dissolves. There are chemicals in it. We don't know entirely what is happening with the chemicals. There have been studies, and this is always fraught. If you've ever covered the nicotine industry, it's always fraught when a study says this is very safe. Let's see who funded it. <laughs> Let's see what comes out when a university takes a look at this and a few years later. It takes time. So we know it's not as bad for you in the ways that smoking is, the way you're not inhaling something, you're not inhaling carcinogens, we don't know fully what the effects are. We do know that it's being advertised as much safer than the nicotine paths that you're used to taking. How aware are Democrats that this could be a political liability? They are aware now. I don't think when Chuck Schumer had that first press conference a couple weeks ago, he was aware of the cultural power that Zinn had among some conservatives. They did in the, in the days following that, become aware of that. A- and they have not talked much about it. John Fetterman was the only Democratic senator who's not Chuck Schumer who got asked about this. His impulse, and this is sort of the Fetterman story, you know, a, a guy who carries himself like a working class Democrat, said he just didn't think the government should be in that business. It's saying what is good and bad for people. If, if we're going to have legal booze, why don't we have legals in? And I didn't hear many Democrats talk about this, certainly not of their own volition, once Fetterman had said that. There are lots of non-Democrats who might be convinced to vote for a Democrat on one issue or another, why alienate them by saying you're going to take this product away? That's David Weigel, a political reporter for Semaphore. David, thank you. Thank you. A year after powerful earthquakes devastated southern Turkey, officials have raised the death toll to more than 53,000 people. Many thousands more are still in temporary shelters. NPR's Peter Kenyon traveled to the earthquake zone, and he found that calls to hold officials accountable have so far gone unanswered. Antakya is a city of about 400,000 people in Turkey's southernmost province. It was built on the site of the ancient city of Antioch, but much of the modern city crumbled a year ago in the February 6th earthquakes. These days, residents of Antakya wonder how much longer they'll be stuck in cramped shelters. Some are also wondering if any officials will actually be held accountable for the poor construction that left so many people at risk. In the Antakya Farmer's Market, I met 24-year-old Mehmet Dolu, 
who says he's very unhappy to be still living in a shipping container. When asked who's responsible for the buildings that crumbled a year ago, he has an answer. Well, people are blaming the municipality, of course, because they are the ones who let you build a seven-story or ten-story building. Where do you get the license? You get the license from the municipality. This isn't the first time these questions have been raised. The deadly Izmit earthquake of 1999 sparked a public outcry against contractors who were accused of using cheap materials and ignoring safety measures designed to resist earthquake damage. As for accountability, Turkey's Chamber of Engineers and Architects reported that over the years more than 1,300 lawsuits were filed in the hardest-hit cities, but only 35 resulted in a conviction. This year, prosecutors are trying to hold officials accountable with mixed results. They sought 22 and a half years in prison for Akesh Kavak, a local mayor in Gaziantep province. Kavak used to be a contractor, and 26 people perished in one of his buildings a year ago. But despite a pile of incriminating evidence, he was acquitted, only to be rearrested after a public outcry. He was far from alone, however. Officials say of the more than 1,700 collapsed buildings that caused fatalities, more than half were unlicensed structures. Emma Sinclair Webb with Human Rights Watch says beyond contractors, public officials must also be investigated. She says mayors, city council members, and planning departments across Turkey need to step up and really enforce building codes and standards. All of these people have a responsibility to do their job properly, to not cut corners, um, to not let their political relationships or their crony relationships with contractors influence their decision making. And, you know, this for the public should be a crucial issue in the upcoming elections. Sinclair Webb says under Turkish law, a public prosecutor has to get permission from the government to investigate a public official. She says that law has been used in the past to insulate officials suspected of misconduct. There's a big risk at the moment that that law will again be used to prevent public servants being properly investigated for their crimes uh, in connection with this earthquake. Meanwhile, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says his ruling party isn't at fault for the ongoing misery in parts of the earthquake zone. He blames what he calls a lack of vision among local leaders, most of whom are from the secular opposition party. It seems not even what the World Health Organization dubbed as Europe's worst natural disaster in a century is immune from Turkish politicking in the run-up to March's local elections. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Doctors often have to share details about their own mental health in order to practice medicine, but many healthcare groups say that violates privacy and deters people from seeking treatment. From member station WBUR, Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports on an effort in Massachusetts to reduce the stigma. And a warning to listeners this story discusses suicide. By any measure, Lisa Lerner was a high achiever. She went to Harvard, became a dermatologist, and started a family. At her medical practice near Boston, she became an expert at diagnosing skin conditions, says her husband, Ethan Lerner, also a doctor. One of the things that people loved about Lisa is she would just call it, boom. She wouldn't hesitate. You know, this is what it is. He says his wife worked a lot and was good at her job. Lisa Lerner also had depression her whole adult life. After the sudden death of her adult son, Max, in 2019, she died by suicide. She took her life on Insurrection Day, January 6, 2021. Lisa Lerner was 58. 
Healthcare workers are a disproportionately high risk of suicide, according to the CDC, and feelings of burnout, depression, and anxiety are common, especially among doctors. Yet, doctors often have to tell licensing boards, hospitals, and insurance companies about their history of mental illness and addiction. That's even if they're getting treatment and even if those problems don't hinder their ability to take care of patients. For Lisa Lerner, the questions were an invasion of privacy and made it harder for her to seek care, her husband says. It's just unbelievably uncomfortable, a huge stressor. No one worked harder than her. No one could do a better job than her. And so why was this relevant at all? Physicians often fear they could be shamed, penalized, or even lose their jobs for getting mental health care or addiction treatment. Now, there is a concerted effort to reduce that stigma. In Massachusetts, all hospitals and health insurers have promised to stop asking clinicians about their history of mental illness and addiction. Instead, they'll ask only about current conditions, mental or physical, that could impair someone's ability to practice medicine. Dr. Barbara Spivak, president of the Massachusetts Medical Society, says that's a huge step forward. It's particularly important in today's world where we're really seeing so many physicians suffering from various levels of burnout, where the stresses of medicine are really interfering in the joy of medicine and maybe even the joy of of life. More than two dozen state medical boards have stopped asking doctors about their mental health history, but many state officials and hospital leaders still pose inappropriate questions, says healthcare executive Jay Corey Feist. Questions like, Have you ever been treated for or do you have a diagnosis for any mental health condition? Feist runs the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, named for his sister-in-law, an ER doctor in New York who died by suicide in 2020. He says Breen was terrified that seeking mental health care would end her career. Once we got her stabilized, she said, well, now I'm now my career's over. Now I'm done. Feist says too many doctors share those fears, but he's hopeful that a few simple paperwork changes could make a difference. For NPR News, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey in Boston. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, you can call or text 988. Just those three numbers will get you to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR in men's college beanpot hockey at the Boston Garden. It's Northeastern 1, Harvard nothing at the end of the first period. Boston University takes on Boston College in the second game. It starts at 8 o'clock. The Bruins and Salts both have the night off. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 60 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals, maplewoodyearround.com, and the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley, three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. Tomorrow on WBUR, Dr. Ralph De La Torre, he's the CEO of Steward Health. Tomorrow morning, a closer look at the man behind the troubled health care system. Start your day here tomorrow. This is WBUR. It's 549. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. 
Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Lauren Valladares. After graduating from college, Lauren moved to Central America to work for an international aid organization. There, she fell in love with a man named Pedro. Not long after, Valladares became pregnant. Then, one day, she and Pedro decided to take a trip to the beach. There were lots of people out and about, and lots of surfers and swimmers, and we decided to go ahead and get in the water. And what I didn't know about Pedro back then is that he was not a strong swimmer. We got in pretty cautiously, and then, before you knew it, we weren't touching the bottom. We turn around and we're pretty far from where we started. I'm treading water just fine. And I notice that Pedro's sort of struggling a little bit. And here I am, five months pregnant, about 100 meters from the shoreline. And my fiancé now can't swim. And he's starting to really struggle. So my life starts flashing before my eyes. And I'm thinking, we're all going to drown we were far away from the shore, and I wouldn't be able to take him in. Out of nowhere comes a surfer on his board. We weren't close to anybody when, you know, at the place we had gotten the water. But this surfer comes up and says, hey, do you guys need help? Because he saw us struggling. And we said, yes, yes, please. He had us grab onto his board and started paddling towards the shore. It took us a while to get in, but um, we came up on shore. We were exhausted and shocked that we were even still alive. And we said thank you to this guy, and then he walked away. I think back to that moment often, and I regret not asking him his name. I always think, had I asked him his name... My firstborn son would have been named after him because he not only saved our lives, the two of us, but he saved our future family. Lauren Valladares. She and Pedro now have three kids and live in Tucson, Arizona. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. 
today in the German town of Halberstadt, an organ performing a piece of music by the late American composer John Cage struck a new chord for the first time in two years. Here it is. That's it. That is the new chord. Here's NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz with more. This piece is titled Organ 2, As Slow As Possible. And one of the only instructions composer John Cage left for those performing it was to, as the title suggests, play it as slowly as possible. One might say mission accomplished for the folks with the John Cage Organ Foundation in Halberstadt, or not. When Foundation members met to plan this performance well after Cage's death in 1992, they could not agree on what exactly Cage meant when he said, as slow as possible, recalls Foundation member Rainer Neugebauer. So, and they said, oh, the, the organist must go sometimes to the loo, yes, or must uh, something to eat, yes, and, and then one people uh, who said no, the, uh, he, he was a theologian, he said no, um, the organist must play until he dies uh, from the seat, yes. The theologian's idea lost traction when the group realized it might be difficult to find an organist willing to die while playing a John Cage composition. So they came up with a simpler solution, small sandbags to hold the keys down. After further debate, the group decided the piece would be played for 639 years to mark the time between the construction of the world's first 12-tone Gothic organ in Halberstadt in 1361 and the new millennium. The city donated an abandoned 11th-century convent for the performance, and on September 5, 2001, what would have been Cage's 89th birthday, the performance began. The wooden-framed organ that has played the composition since 2001 is a work in progress. It's being built as the piece goes on, with metal pipes added or taken away with each chord change. Its bellows, sitting across from the organ on a platform, are powered electrically with a backup generator, the wind from them carried to the organ through an underground pipe. Neugebauer, sporting a long gray beard and black framed glasses, beckons me towards them. In the beginning of the uh, first part, uh, for 17 months, uh, you came in and hear only the bellows. And that's because Cage's piece starts with a short pause, a pause that, when calibrated to fit 639 years, meant the first 17 months of the piece was just the sound of air whooshing through the bellows. But years later, Neugebauer realized with shock that his team had miscalculated this pause. It should have lasted 28 months. The 639-year project had begun with a mistake. We made thousand mistakes. <laughs> there was the time he allowed a movie crew to film the organ at night, and they accidentally knocked one of the pipes loose, changing the note for a few hours. Or the time when a local politician couldn't make one of the chord change ceremonies, so they delayed it by a couple of weeks. That was the final straw for one of the project founders who fancied himself a John Cage purist and who had had enough. He quit in a huff. Neugebauer takes it all in stride. I think Cage is one of the human beings who is nearest the point to be so free that he was not disappointed when there is no meaning, no intention. 
After all, says Neugebauer, we're talking about a composer whose most famous composition, titled 433, asks performers to sit silently for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. On a quiet, windy winter day, visitor Gabriela Faust stands in front of the organ and closes her eyes, almost in meditation. There's something contemplative about this sound. It's relaxing and calming, she says. Faust wonders, though, how this piece will continue until the year 2640. Who's going to take care of this organ, she asks. When I asked Neugebauer this, he goes over a list of future threats to the performance. Right-wing extremists, climate change, nuclear war, the end of humankind, that kind of thing. But those concerns are for future generations, he says. He's only in charge of the first of the piece's eight movements, and that's scheduled to wrap up on September 4th, 2072 if he's calculated it correctly. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Halberstadt. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options, at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has returned to the Middle East in an effort to ease some of the suffering in Gaza. He's been pushing Israel to agree to get more aid into Gaza and to do more to safeguard Palestinian civilians. It's Monday, February 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. That story coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, 18 months into his reign, King Charles is suspending his public duties. Buckingham Palace says today he started outpatient treatment for cancer. Dartmouth College is going back to requiring the SAT after it found students from less advantaged backgrounds were not submitting test scores high enough to help them get in. And fact-checking musician Jay-Z's comments at the Grammy Awards last night that the judges ignore black artists, including Beyonce, his wife. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Senate will begin considering its long-debated immigration bill Wednesday. The deal is meant to curb the record number of migrants arriving at the U.S. southern border and dramatically speed up processing. It also contains military aid for Israel and Ukraine. As NPR's Eric McDaniel reports, it is a long way from passage. The bipartisan trio of Senate negotiators are urging their colleagues to actually read the bill, which Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says contains more conservative wins than the GOP could hope for even during a Republican presidency. Some on the left object to border shutdown provisions and lack of a path to citizenship for some brought to the U.S.'s children, while many Republicans are pulling back, reluctant to ignore GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump's opposition. House Republican leadership is united in its opposition, writing in a joint statement that, quote, any consideration of this Senate bill in its current form is a waste of time. It's dead on arrival in the House. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, The Capitol. Polls show public opinion on abortion rights is out of step with the law, and that's motivating one woman in Tennessee to run for a state House seat. Katie O'Riddle reports. When Allie Phillips was 19 weeks pregnant, she found out her fetus wasn't viable. Because of state law, she had to leave Tennessee to terminate the pregnancy. Now, now, the 28-year-old says she's running for office to change that law. Voting isn't going to be enough. I have to be in that house. I have to be in there making decisions for the whole state. Her opponent declined a request for comment. Whether Phillips wins may come down to Tennessee voters like Jody O'Connor. She says reproductive rights are important to her. And we didn't come this far to get set back another 50 years. And so, no, there's got to be some middle ground here middle ground she's not seeing in the Republican platform. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Clarksville, Tennessee. Buckingham Palace has provided few details but did confirm today Britain's King Charles III has been diagnosed with cancer and has begun treatment. Palace saying the treatment is not related to a benign prostate condition the 75-year-old monarch has. Officials say the cancer was found during treatment last month but we're not more specific than that. Stocks ended the day sharply lower after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell addressed the outlook for lowering interest rates. As NPR's David Gurr explains, Powell said he and his colleagues want to be careful. Wall Street had been hoping the Federal Reserve would be comfortable enough with the progress it's made fighting high inflation to start cutting interest rates at its next meeting. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell poured cold water on that on CBS News' 60 Minutes. I think it's not likely that this committee will reach that level of confidence in time for the March meeting, which is in seven weeks. That led to higher yields on U.S. government bonds and stocks sagged. Powell said he and his fellow policymakers want to see more good economic data before they'll start lowering interest rates. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow was down 274 points. This is NPR. Ukraine's president said in a TV interview he is considering replacing several senior officials in his government. NPR's Hannah Palomarenko reports from Kyiv. There's been speculation for a week he's planning to fire the head of Ukraine's armed forces. Over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told Italian TV channel Ryan News that he's in the process of a major reset of his government. He said the shakeup doesn't just involve one person or one sector and that he wants a team focused on victory. Zelensky did not confirm that he is replacing Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. But a source close to the government told NPR that Zaluzhny's dismissal is a done deal. In the interview on Italian TV, Zelensky said Russia's war on Ukraine threatens all of Europe. He also talked about the importance of international aid, including weapons. 
Hanna Palomarenko, NPR News, Kyiv. Jurors have begun deliberating in the case against Jennifer Crumbly. Crumbly, the mother of Ethan Crumbly, who opened fire at Oxford High School in Michigan in 2021, killing four students and wounding others. Both parents face involuntary manslaughter charges. Prosecutors say they failed to tell school officials who raised concerns about his mental health that the family had given the boy a gun. He then used that gun to carry out the shooting. Ethan Crumbly's father, James Crumbly, will stand trial in the case separately. Crude oil futures prices moved higher amid a ratcheting up of Mideast tensions. Oil rose 50 cents a barrel today to settle at 72.78 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A local advocacy group is raising concerns about the bipartisan proposal in the U.S. Senate to restrict immigration at the southern border. That deal would also make it more difficult for migrants to claim asylum. Elizabeth Sweet heads the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Council. She calls the bill inhumane and un-American. It doesn't move us toward creating a truly functional asylum system. Instead, it's gutting the asylum system and pouring more money into border enforcement and detention. Sweet says immigration reform should also prioritize creating a pathway to legal status for undocumented people living in the U.S. Governor Maura Healey supports the bill. She says it will make progress toward fixing the broken federal immigration system. A move to help people who live on the streets of Boston is being credited with housing 300 people between the summer of 2021 and last October. Jim Green with the Mayor's Office of Housing helped run the Street to Home initiative. He says the city has received an additional $16.5 million federal grant to carry on similar work over the next three years. We have uh, uh, plans in place to work with many of the same organizations and some new partners to house another 372 people from the streets into housing uh, and to build an infrastructure around the the stabilization services that people need long-term to be successful. Green says the great majority of people who are housed under the initiative remain housed long-term. And piping plovers are rebounding in Massachusetts. There are more than 1,100 breeding pairs now in the state. That's compared to just over 100 when the species was listed as threatened in Massachusetts in 1986. Lyra Brennan is director of the Mass Audubon's Coastal Waterbird Program. She says targeted conservation has helped the population thrive, but she's worried about factors that are out of her group's control. We're definitely worried about climate change and loss of habitat with sea level rise, increased storm frequency, increased precipitation. So we do anticipate that there will be an impact. And that's why I do think it's so critical now to do the best work we can to support a really healthy big population. Brennan says the public can help conservation efforts by staying out of marked-off areas and keeping dogs on leashes. It is 34 degrees in Boston, cloudy overnight tonight, a few cold, gusty winds, about 26 for low. Tomorrow, generally cloudy, maybe a few bright spots, temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday, sunshine by the afternoon, inching up to about 40 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.08. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a few minutes, we will have details on today's announcement from Buckingham Palace that Britain's King Charles III has cancer. The type of cancer was not immediately revealed, but the 75-year-old monarch has already begun treatment. We've got that story coming up, but first... America's top diplomat is back in the Middle East trying to reassure everyone that the U.S. does not want a war with Iran. That's even as the U.S. military is launching airstrikes on militias across the region that are backed by Iran. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with him. Hi, Michelle. Hi there, Sasha. Michelle, what is Blinken trying to do on this trip? Well, de-escalation seems to be the main buzzword. He's, you know, wants to remind people in the region that the U.S. is going to respond to militia attacks, especially if Americans are killed. But U.S. officials say the response will be proportionate and the goal is not to escalate this into a regional war. But they're also saying that this could continue and they won't rule out even more strikes while Blinken is in the region. The other big issue, of course, is Gaza. This is Blinken's fifth trip to the Middle East since that war broke out, and each time he comes, he's been pushing Israel to agree to get more aid into Gaza and to do more to safeguard Palestinian civilians. But Michelle, today Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is again saying that the goal is, quote, total victory over Hamas. And he's saying that Israel can't finish the war before then even if that takes months and not years. That doesn't seem promising for any breakthroughs for Blinken. Yeah, I mean, U.S. officials were already downplaying the idea of any breakthroughs on this trip, but they think that Israel does have an interest in reaching a new deal with Hamas to get hostages out of Gaza and a pause in fighting, a pause that is longer than the the deal that they had last year. There are two other countries involved in that diplomacy, Egypt and Qatar, and Secretary Blinken does plan to visit both of those countries on Tuesday before he goes to Israel to meet with Netanyahu and other top Israeli officials. He's also planning to meet with the Palestinian Authority leaders in the occupied West Bank. He wants to make sure that if there's a new hostage deal, and again, we don't know if this will come anytime soon, that all sides will be ready to start thinking about the long term, about a future for Gaza where a reformed Palestinian Authority and not Hamas would be in control. But the problem, Sasha, is that we have to get a hostage deal first, and the ball is in Hamas's court. At least that's what U.S. officials are saying. We mentioned at the top that you are in Saudi Arabia. What role is Saudi Arabia playing in this? It's interesting. You know, before the war broke out, the Biden administration was negotiating with Saudi Arabia on a normalization deal with Israel. And Blinken still sees that as a viable option once the war in Gaza ends. But the Saudis want some things from the U.S. in return, so they're talking about that. Again, this all seems pretty far off given where things are now with the war raging in Gaza. But those are just some of the things that Blinken's here talking about. There's also this medium-term problem of who runs Gaza and who provides security once Israel says it's achieved its goals. So he's begun talking to Arab leaders about some of those practical things. You have reported, Michelle, on some of the criticism that Blinken and the Biden administration have faced at home and around the world. The latest was an open letter from more than 800 civil servants in the U.S. and Europe calling on the U.S. to use its leverage with Israel to end the war. Is that making a difference? Well, he's heard the criticism. There are protesters outside his house. But at this point, his aides don't think that the time is right to put pressure on Israel. Not now when there's a new hostage deal on the table. One, the U.S. wants Hamas to accept, so they want the 
pressure to be focused there. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you. Thank you. King Charles III has cancer. Fewer than 18 months into his reign, the British monarch is suspending public duties. But Buckingham Palace says he will continue with the paperwork of state business as he undergoes outpatient treatment. And that treatment began today in London. That is where NPR's Lauren Freyer is based, and she joins us from our studio there. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Mary Louise. Tell us more about the king's diagnosis and and his prognosis. We actually don't know what type of cancer it is. King Charles was hospitalized recently for an enlarged prostate. That condition was benign. Mm -hmm. But Buckingham Palace says in the course of that treatment, another, quote, separate issue of concern was noted and that subsequent tests have identified a form of cancer. No word on what type or what stage. The palace says the king today began treatment and that he remains, quote, wholly positive. So while he will postpone public duty, He's expected to continue meeting weekly with the prime minister, for example. He'll keep getting those red boxes. They're called ministerial or dispatch boxes, literally red wooden boxes with government documents in them. He gets those daily, and he's expected to continue to do so throughout his treatment. Yeah, I remember those red boxes from uh, from the, the Crown. Too many hours yeah, of my life crown. spent watching The Crown on Netflix. <laughs> exactly. all, all the red boxes. I, I want to follow up on, what, on just practically what this means, because as King... He's a celebrity, but he also plays a a key constitutional role in the UK. What happens when he suspends public duties? He does. So the king's role is ceremonial, but as you say, it's important. And there are long-standing protocols in place for this. The king's private secretary is in touch with the private secretaries of the prime minister and that of the cabinet office. If the king is incapacitated, councillors of state are appointed to act on his behalf. But the palace has indicated that those are not required at this point. Now, if that changes, Queen Camilla could step in as a councillor of state. So could the next four adults in line for the throne. So that would be the king's two sons, Prince William and Prince Harry, then the king's brother, and then his eldest child, the king's niece. And just to emphasize, as king, he is head of state, right? He, Yeah, totally. And so that really comes into play during elections. And the UK is expected to hold an election by the end of this year. The king has a big role in that. He dissolves parliament. He appoints a new prime minister to form a new government. Councillors of state could possibly do that for the king, but it would have to be with his explicit permission and authorization. I'm thinking, Lauren, this comes, of course, a year and a half after uh, the royal family and the UK lost Queen Elizabeth II. What has been the reaction to this announcement there in Britain and, and internationally? Yeah, so the news came after sundown here, after the working day was over, but already um, condolences are pouring in. President Biden has said he's concerned about King Charles. Former President Trump called the king a wonderful man. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the whole country wishes him well. I mean, Charles waited sort of all of his life to become king. He was 73 when his mother Elizabeth II died. He's the oldest person ever to ascend the throne here. So there's sympathy that he's facing a health challenge, you know, so soon after taking the throne. And have we heard from the rest of the royal family? I'm thinking in particular about about the king's sons. 
Yeah, so the king personally notified his siblings as well as his children about his diagnosis. Prince Harry, um, you'll recall, quit royal duties back in 2020 and is now based in California with his American wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. He is actually en route to London to be with his father right now. It's also a difficult situation for Prince William, Harry's brother, um, especially because his wife, Kate, is currently recovering from abdominal surgery. She was hospitalized recently for two weeks, in fact, in the same London hospital where the king had his prostate treatment. And so William, the heir to the throne, has been nursing his wife and now has this news of his dad's diagnosis. But as you know, Mary Louise, the Brits have this slogan, keep calm and carry on. And it's an emotional time for the royals here, but it will also increase their workload, at least for some of them, as Queen Camilla and as Prince William and others take on more of the public duties while the king is undergoing this treatment. That is NPR's Lauren Frere, keeping calm and carrying on in London. <laughs> Thank you. Will do. Thanks. Dartmouth College, the Ivy League school in New Hampshire, has announced that it is reinstating the standardized test requirement for next year's application cycle. It's an effort to get more economic diversity. Dartmouth is among hundreds of schools that went test optional during the pandemic. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports. The decision to bring back the SAT and ACT testing requirements to Dartmouth was based on new research conducted by a group of professors at the college. They found evidence that disadvantaged students didn't include their scores but should have. We're missing out. We, we find ourselves missing out on some great students. That's Bruce Sasserdote, an economics professor at Dartmouth and one of the researchers. He says students from disadvantaged backgrounds, the first in their family to go to college or from lower income families, submitted their test scores at far lower rates, but their scores were high enough and might have helped them get in. We can see in the data, oh wow, that student, boy, they had a 1450, they even had a 1500. We didn't even know that. And they were not admitted to Dartmouth. And boy, in the context of their background, that is a really outstanding score. And uh, that would have been a really great piece to have. Dartmouth pulled this data from years when they were test optional. Before the pandemic, there was a small but mighty wave of colleges that were ditching the ACT and SAT in college admissions. Then COVID happens and the sort of the wave of test optional becomes a kind of tsunami. That's Harry Fader with Fair Test, an advocacy organization that tracks test optional colleges. According to Fair Test, there are more than 1,900 colleges and universities that are test optional, meaning students can decide whether they want to submit their standardized test scores along with their college applications. The Dartmouth researchers found that prospective students might not know how to make that decision. Sasserdote says the college is working on ways to better communicate to students what a helpful score would be. Research has shown that there is a correlation between standardized test scores and family income. And advocates say that link ultimately hurts students from marginalized backgrounds when it comes to admissions. But the College Board, the organization behind the SAT, and Sasserdote at Dartmouth say students are disadvantaged by inequities in the education system, not tests. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Voters head to the polls on primary day in Nevada tomorrow, but many Republicans will not have all the choices on the ballot they might expect. We'll explain tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. Listen again when you wake up. A big drop for the Dow today. It fell about seven-tenths of a percent. S&P retreated from its record high of last week. Today it lost about three-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped two-tenths of a percent. Uber says it's laying off nearly 170 people and closing its office in Back Bay, Boston. Uber says the cuts are related to its closure of the alcohol delivery service Drizzly. The layoffs will start in April. Drizzly announced last month it would shut down the service and fold it into its existing brands. This is WBUR at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Comcast Business. Helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Send the perfect gift of Winston Flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. Should have a lot of clouds around tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s, a cold wind tonight. Tomorrow should be more clouds. Temperatures in the mid-30s may finally see some sunshine again on Wednesday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees in Boston at 622. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Students and educators in Newton went back to school today. Classes have been canceled for more than two weeks because of a teacher's strike. WBUR's Kara Young reports today's return to class came to many as a huge relief. Newton parent Nils Steenstrup says the energy level in his house this morning was high. Bit of excitement. It almost felt like first day of school type of thing after the summer. Steenstrup's child is a senior in high school. His family is glad the strike is over, but they worry how the school will make up lost learning time and other planned events like school plays. The new four-year contract was ratified on Sunday, with almost 98 percent of the Newton Teachers Association voting in favor of the agreement. It includes several wins for the nearly 2,000-member union, including higher pay for teachers' aides, a district promise to hire more school social workers, and a better parental leave policy. Mike Zillis, the president of the Newton Teachers Association, says his team is proud of the deal that was reached, even though the pressure was high in the final moments of negotiations Friday evening. It was tough. You know, it was like, at what point do we compromise to get the agreement and on what do we hold firm. So there's a lot of tension around those decisions which are being made in a period of three or four hours. Leaders with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees say, looking back, the 11-day strike lasted longer than expected. But Glenn Kucher, the group's executive director, says one lesson he's taking away is how to effectively communicate with community members. He cited the daily updates from Newton City Hall on progress around negotiations. They've put out a lot of literature. It's well-written. It's objective. It is conciliatory. I really applaud the mayor. 
It's currently illegal for teachers in Massachusetts to strike. There's currently pending legislation on Beacon Hill hoping to change that. Sponsors of the bill say the situation in Newton has renewed discussions and momentum around the topic in recent weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Jay-Z has 24 Grammy Awards, and he won an honorary Grammy last night. But when he went up to speak, he criticized the Recording Academy for ignoring black artists like his wife, Beyonce. I don't want to embarrass this young lady, but she has more Grammys than everyone and never won album of the year. So even by your own metrics, that doesn't work. And he's not the only one making this criticism. For some perspective, we have NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiokas. Hi. Hey, Sasha. So Jay-Z's remarks have caused a lot of chatter, but there are some exceptions to his criticism. I'm thinking about the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, which won Album of the Year in 1999. That was a really big moment for hip-hop, and it was the last time a black female artist won. Both of those things are true. And interestingly, Sasha, that was also a year led by female artists. Back then, there were only five nominees for Album of the Year. And that year, they were all solo female artists or women-fronted bands. So we know there was Lauryn Hill, but also Sheryl Crow, Madonna, Shania Twain, and the band Garbage with singer Shirley Manson. And there's another exception, uh, Outkast. Uh, Speaker Box, The Love Below, that won Album of the Year in 2004. And that, I think, was the only other hip-hop album to do so. Of course, that was 20 years ago. So some people are making the case that hip-hop as a whole has been ignored. How, how fair is that? Well, we have this situation in which the most influential genre on the planet is shut out of the music industry's biggest prize now decade after decade. And I have to say, Sasha, not only was I a voting member of the Grammys during that outcast era, I was also a judge in one of the categories that wasn't open to the general membership voting. I left being a Grammy judge and voter when I joined NPR, but that year that Outkast won, one of the other nominees for Album of the Year was Missy Elliott for her album Under Construction. And at least to me back then, it felt like a certain tide was maybe starting to turn. At the end of the day, though, that didn't happen. You know, the Oscars, as you certainly know, have made a push to diversify their membership and their picks. Has anything like that happened with the Grammys? Yes and no. Back in 2018, the Recording Academy, which is the organization that gives out the Grammys, pledged that it would diversify its membership after it endured heavy criticism, not just for sidelining Black artists, but women overall as well. Infamously, the then-CEO Neil Portnow told Variety that if women want to find places for themselves in the music industry, they had to, quote, step up. Unsurprisingly, there was a lot of pushback to that, and people asking the Grammys to do better. And back then, I asked the Academy, and it turned out they weren't asking their members for their demographics. And frankly, you can't improve what you don't track. Also, you have to cross certain hurdles to become a voting member with a certain number of album credits. And that privileges folks who have been working in the industry for a while. So they've made membership more accessible, but not necessarily those people have become voting members. But if the Grammy voting membership is starting to look different, then why haven't we seen that shift in its voting? 
There are some structural issues at hand here, Sasha. First of all, there's something like 21,000 Recording Academy members, but still only something like 12,000 of them are eligible to vote for the Grammys at all. And the Grammys have a whopping 94 categories now. That's way more than the Oscars. And the members can only vote in those six major categories, things like Album of the Year and Record of the Year and Best New Artist. That's it. Otherwise, they can only vote in three genre fields that they specialize in. So that often means for those big major categories, voters still vote for the most mainstream names, the ones they know the best. So maybe you like Taylor Swift or someone you know does, and then you vote for her and she continues her work domination. That's NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas. Thanks, Anastasia. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. At Mass General Brigham Health Plan. Offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors. All connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan. With you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.